Today is Wednesday, June 22nd, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, President Joe Biden explores ways to overcome Russia blockade and get Ukraine's grain to the market world. And so the president's working with leaders around the world to see if there's other overland ways we can do that. Uh, and he's exploring a range of options. He's keeping an open mind about how that would look. The UN projects more than 2 million refugees will need to be resettled in third countries of asylum in 2023. But some refugees are particularly vulnerable. They include people who cannot return to their home countries, live safely in neighboring countries, or have special needs and disabilities. And Syria and Egypt agreed to ship 650 million cubic meters of natural gas to Lebanon. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukraine reported heavy strikes Tuesday in the region as Russian forces pushed to gain full control of the eastern city. Flashpoint Ukraine's host Steve Miller speaks with Anna Shenikova in Kyiv. What we know today, so today's situation remains very difficult. Russian forces advanced a little bit. We know that now the fightings are basically happening in this industrial area as well. So we know that Ukrainian forces still control the territory of the Azot plant. And I know that seems to mirror what took place earlier in Ukraine down in Mariupol with the Asvestal plant. I understand Russians were also using some artillery to try and advance their positions. Very, very difficult situation, especially taking into consideration that there are a lot of civilians hiding at the Zod plant. So they all are basically under the Russian missile attacks and they are under a big danger. We know that very heavy street fightings are continuing and Ukrainian forces are trying to control as much buildings as they can. But again, in terms of artillery, of course, Russians have quite an advance. I also wanted to ask you about fighting elsewhere in the country because I understand that, especially in the recent days, there has been an uptick in artillery and missile fighting, and that's something that President Volodymyr Zelensky alluded to earlier this week. Actually, there is increased risk of missile attacks around across the country. So yesterday, Ukrainian government announced that Ukrainian society and Ukrainian citizens should be very careful in every region of Ukraine. They should be very careful because there is a scare of massive missile attack from the Black Sea. There is a high danger that Ukrainian cities and especially administrative centers and especially administrative buildings where the decisions are taken are under a risk. That's Flashpoint Ukraine's host Steve Miller speaking with Anna Chanikova in Kyiv. White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby has accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of weaponizing food by blocking Ukraine grain exports and said President Joe Biden is examining options on how to get grain out. Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine halted Kyiv's Black Sea grain exports, causing global food shortages though Moscow blames Western sanctions for the crisis. The United Nations has appealed to both sides, as well as their maritime neighbor and NATO member Turkey, to agree a corridor. John Kirby. President Putin is no kidding weaponizing food. 
let's let's just call it what it is. He's weaponizing food. He's got an essential blockade there in the Black Sea so that nothing can leave by sea. And that's, of course, how Ukraine has historically gotten its grain to markets. And so the president's working with leaders around the world to see if there's other overland ways we can do that. Uh, and he's exploring a range of options. He's keeping an open mind about how that would look. And there's lots of other of our partners, particularly in Europe, who also want to see that done. So, so there's a lot of work being done here. But as I said, time is not on our side. I mean, this grain is a perishable commodity. So we want to get it out as fast as we can. That's White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. Analysts say the African Union is not likely to offer Ukraine much support against Russia, despite a passionate address Monday by Ukraine's president. Many African nations have historic ties to Russia and have refused to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Halima Tumani reports from Addis Ababa. In his speech to the African Union Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of holding Africa hostage by not allowing Ukrainian grain exports to reach the continent unless Western sanctions are lifted. Zelensky, speaking by video conference, also reminded AU leaders about Africa's history of being colonized and said the continent should never support any attempt by one nation to colonize another. Abdi Rashid is Chief Horn of Africa Analyst for Sahan Research, a Nairobi-based research group. He says that while many Africans have expressed support toward Russia because of the former Soviet Union's backing of liberation movements against colonial powers and apartheid, Russia has changed. And I think Africans probably have not have not come to grips with the reality of modern Russia. So we need to modernize our view of Russia and understand that today's Russia is essentially an imperial power uh, which feels weakened and which wants to, I think, get back the kind of uh, clout and uh, supremacy uh, it had. After the address, Mosa Fakit Mahamat, chairperson of the African Union Commission, tweeted that the African Union reiterates its position of the urgent need for dialogue to end the conflict in Ukraine, to allow peace to return to the region, and to restore global stability. Halima Athmani for VA News, Addis Ababa. The United Nations World Food Program in Sudan is warning against looming hunger in the country, with almost a third of the nation's population facing acute food insecurity. WFP officials say conflict, climate shocks and other factors are pushing millions of people deeper into hunger and poverty. Michael Atit has the story for VOA from Khartoum. A comprehensive food security and vulnerability assessment released by the United Nations World Food Programme this month shows that at least 15 million people in Sudan, one-third of the population, are currently facing acute food insecurity. Speaking to South Sudan in focus in Khartoum, WFP communication officer Lenny Kensley says the already alarming food security situation is likely to worsen throughout the lean season in Sudan, which began this month and will last through September. Kinsley says WFP expects the number may rise to 18 million people or 40% of the population by September. The combined effects of the economic and political crisis, conflict and displacement, climate shocks, including droughts and floods, and a poor harvest in the past agricultural season are among the key drivers of food insecurity in Sudan. Sudan's population is estimated at 40 million people, according to the last census taken in 2008. Kinsley says 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine is also driving up food and fuel prices in Sudan, which is dependent on food imports from Ukraine and Russia. The Black Sea ports more than half of the country's wheat imports. Kinsley says their assessment shows that food insecurity exists in all 18 states in Sudan. The 10 most affected localities are in the Darfurs, which have been ravaged by nearly two decades of protracted conflict and displacement. The most affected locality is in Karanik, West Darfur, where renewed clashes at the end of April claimed the lives of at least 179 people and displaced around 125,000. Up to 90% of the population in Karanik is food insecure, the analysis says. Adam Harun, an IDP living in Sudan's Kalmakam, says the situation is deteriorating because the IDPs did not receive any food rations over the past eight months. Harun says, we don't know what to do. Some of us are thinking of migrating from this country to Europe. This country is no longer safe for us. We will still call on the aid organization that the first priority of the IDPs and refugees is food. And if the displaced persons are subjected again to hunger in the camp, that is going to be a disaster. Earlier this year, international humanitarian groups appealed for more than $1.9 billion to provide assistance and protection to 14.3 million people in Sudan this year. $806 million is required for life-saving activities alone. That's Michael Atish reporting from Khartoum. The UN Refugee Agency projects more than 2 million refugees will need to be resettled in third countries of asylum in 2023, a 36% increase over this year's 1.47 million. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. All of the more than 27 million refugees in the world have fled war, violence, conflict or persecution and need international protection. But some refugees are particularly vulnerable. They include people who cannot return to their home countries, live safely in neighboring countries, or have special needs and disabilities. UN Refugee Spokeswoman Shabia Mantou says resettlement is a life-saving tool to protect some refugees, those who are most at risk or have special needs that cannot be met in their countries of asylum. Of all refugees submitted by UNHCR for resettlement last year, 37% were for those with legal and physical protection needs, 32% were for survivors of violence and torture, and 17% were for women, adolescents and children at risk. The UNHCR reports the most needs in 2023 will be from countries of asylum across the African continent, closely followed by the Middle East, North Africa and Turkey. Mantu says Syria, with nearly 778,000 refugees, represents the population with the highest global resettlement needs followed by refugees from Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, and Myanmar, which has more than 114,000 largely stateless Rohingya. She says the substantial jump in the number of refugees needing resettlement next year is based on several factors. Humanitarian impacts, the protection impacts of the pandemic, which have exacerbated vulnerabilities, the protracted nature of a number of these refugee situations in which more people are displaced or they're spending longer times in displacement, and also the emergence of new uh, humanitarian crises and displacement situations. Mantu warns resettlement needs will continue to grow in the absence of peace and prospects for the voluntary return of refugees. 
The UNHCR is appealing for predictable multi-year resettlement commitments from states. It also is calling on states to speed up resettlement processing and departure arrangements so refugees do not have to continue languishing in countries of asylum with no end in sight to their ordeal. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt on Tuesday agreed to ship 650 million cubic meters of natural gas per year from Egypt to Lebanon via Syria. It's part of a U.S.-backed effort to address Lebanon's crippling blackouts without electricity and gas transfers. The deal was signed at a ceremony at the Lebanese Energy Ministry in Beirut. It will see gas piped to Lebanon's northern Dearmar power plant, where it could add some 450 megawatts or around four extra hours of power per day to the grid. Lebanon's caretaker energy minister, Walid Fayyad, told Reuters that the deal still requires the approval of the World Bank, which has pledged financing and the United States for compliance with the Syria sanctions regime. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. As the tense situation wait for the expected North Korea nuclear missiles launch continues, Pyongyang is facing two major health crises. Officials say a, quote, epidemic of an intestinal disease, unquote, is ravaging some parts of the country as it struggles to cope with severe COVID-19 outbreaks. For more on how the reclusive nation is coping with the pandemics without official outside assistance, I spoke with VOA's Seoul Bureau Chief Bill Gallo. A state media report said they have sent medicines to this North Korean province that are enough to take care of 800 families. So that may give us some idea. This is also uh, coming at the same time North Korea is dealing with a COVID outbreak that North Korea insists is getting much better, but many people are very skeptical of that claim. For a country that doesn't have a lot of friends, I would not allow any Western assistance. Does it have the capacity to deal with both pandemics at the same time? No, I don't think it does, not to deal with it effectively. They had consistently turned down Western help for the coronavirus pandemic. South Korea has said it repeatedly offered help on this latest epidemic as well, and North Korea has not responded. Now, North Korea does get help from China on these types of things. Very recently, we heard this UN-backed a COVAX initiative, actually Gavi, the organization that helps run the UN-backed vaccine distribution mechanism, say that it understands that North Korea has accepted some coronavirus vaccines from China and that it has started administering them. But it's not clear how many it has received. It is not believed that North Korea has started widespread vaccinations. A recent uh, television picture of the North Korean leader saw him with a mask on. Is this an indication that he has finally accepted that there's a COVID outbreak in the country and that he's taking it seriously? Pictures of North Korean sort of senior state leaders over the last two years has been pretty inconsistent. About a month ago, admitted that it had the coronavirus within its borders. You did see Kim Jong-un wear a mask. So that in itself has to say a lot, has to communicate a lot to the North Korean people. However, since then, we've seen him at times not wearing a mask. We have seen mass gatherings in Pyongyang where people were wearing masks. We've seen mass gatherings in Pyongyang where people were not wearing masks. So it really is unclear what the message they are trying to send here is. 
But it seems that we at least know this, that the coronavirus has entered North Korea. It is spreading. North Korean officials know that it is. If we presume that North Korea is saying everything it knows about the outbreak, it may not know very much because they don't have enough coronavirus tests to even really sort of grasp the extent to which it has spread in North Korea. That's VOA Seoul Bureau Chief Bill Gallo speaking with me from the South Korean capital. Lawyers for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange are urging the Australian government to do more to gain the release of the Queensland-born activist. Assange is to be extradited from Britain to the United States to face espionage charges in a move approved by the British government late last week. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. To his supporters, Julian Assange is a hero who, among other things, exposed U.S. wrongdoing in conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. They insist his prosecution is politically motivated. But officials in Washington have for years said the confidential U.S. military records and diplomatic cables Assange's WikiLeaks website released had violated U.S. espionage laws and put lives at risk. The Australian-born activist is in a British prison, awaiting extradition to the United States, where he's wanted on 18 criminal charges, including breaking spying laws. Last Friday, British Interior Minister Priti Patel approved Assange's extradition. Assange's legal team is urging the recently elected government in Canberra to demand Assange's release from prison. It's reported that Australia is quietly lobbying for his release and has raised the case with senior United States officials. Greg Barnes is a member of Assange's Australian-based legal team. He told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that Canberra had intervened to bring home an Australian terrorism suspect from Guantanamo Bay and a Melbourne-based academic recently detained in Iran. There is precedent for Australia doing this. We saw most famously the David Hicks case back in, I think, 2004 when the Howard government used its good offices with the Bush administration to get David Hicks back to safety from Guantanamo Bay. We saw it in Kylie Moore Gilbert, for example. Simply because a case is before other jurisdictions doesn't mean that Australia can't get involved. In a statement, Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong said Assange's case has dragged on for too long and that it should be brought to a close. She added that the Australian government couldn't intervene in the legal matters of another country. Since it was founded in 2006, WikiLeaks has released hundreds of thousands of secret classified files and diplomatic cables in what's been described as the largest security breach of its kind. Assange has been fighting extradition to the United States since June 2019 and has indicated he plans to appeal Britain's expulsion order. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. This is Science in a Minute. One of the most mysterious and fascinating celestial objects is a black hole. Thanks to today's advanced astronomical technology, scientists are learning more as they make incredible discoveries. 
A team of astronomers led by researchers at the Australian National University in Canberra say that they've recently found the fastest growing black hole of the past 9 billion years. They say that the supermassive black hole, identified as J1144, eats the amount of material comparable to one Earth every second. It's so luminous that the team says it glows about 7,000 times brighter than all the light from the Milky Way. J1144 has a reported mass of approximately 2.6 billion suns and is located in the constellation Centaurus. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and our panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including Senate Republicans downplay the impact of the House January 6th hearings, which have shed new light on former President Trump's role in the attack on the Capitol building to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election victory. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chini Rofo in Washington. Have a wonderful day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Friday, June 3rd, marked 100 days since Russian President Vladimir Putin instigated a massive deadly war against Ukraine. Over the last weeks and months, Putin waged a brutal war against the people of Ukraine. The Russian military specifically targeted non-combatants, apartment buildings, railroad stations, schools, and hospitals. Thousands died and millions more were displaced. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that two of every three Ukrainian children were displaced from their homes. In the 100 days since Russia's full-scale invasion began, the UNHCR registered nearly 7 million border crossings out of Ukraine. 
But the Ukrainians are fighting back, and they have had success. They are regaining ground lost in the initial days of Russia's assault. They have liberated towns and villages, pushing back the invaders, recording the horrible atrocities committed by Russia's forces. And where just a few months ago Ukrainians crossed borders to safety, they are now returning to help rebuild their country. At least two million have already returned to Ukraine, according to the UNHCR. In the 100 days since Russian President Putin ordered his forces to further invade Ukraine, the world has seen the courage and determination of the people of Ukraine as they fight for their country," said Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The United States, along with our friends and allies, stands by Ukraine and offers maximum support. Since February 24th, the United States has provided more than 6.3 billion dollars of security, humanitarian, and economic assistance to help Ukraine prevail," said Secretary Blinken. We again call on President Putin to immediately end this conflict and all the suffering and global upheaval his war of choice has caused. Neither the United States nor our allies and partners seek to prolong the war to inflict pain on Russia. We greatly respect the citizens of Russia who are not our enemy and who deserve a better future than what continued war and increasing repression will bring," he said. To the families of Ukraine who have lost loved ones, who have been separated by violence, whose villages, apartments, schools, and hospitals have been hit by bombs, shells, and missiles, who have been sent to and survived Russia's so-called filtration camps, the United States stands with you. We will help you defend your sovereignty and territorial integrity, and we will help you rebuild when this war is over. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.